0: Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about life through the prism of food and this month in a season of how to live, be and do better, I'm with Lynn Cassels who, with her partner Sandra Baer, are two of the most inspiring women you're likely to hear on Cooking the Books this year.
1: I think that actually might be a promise. And I want you to understand that it has all been produced in a way that has provided abundance and has regenerated the land, has regenerated me. And I want it to go away and regenerate them as well. You know, the snowflake that makes the snowball.
0: Our Wild Farming Life is their story of following a dream moving from South East England to the Scottish Highlands to regenerate a 150-acre farm. But it was more than a dream. It was a calling to reconnect with the land, to find out what role people can play in nature, and to tell their story to people who are aching to know the answer. It started with a mind map around a kitchen table, which I have to say inspired me to do the same. And I began by asking Lynn if she looked back at that now, would she have followed the same path?
1: Do you know, it's, it's so funny. Um, I, I think knowing what we know now, we'd probably run for the hills. The Cairngorms? Yeah, <laughs> no, it's such a funny thing, Gilly, because, you know, a part of what we do here at Limbrec now is we, we bring people on courses and we say, you know, this is how you kind of set up a small scale farm. This is how we work with cows, blah, blah, blah. But one of the things that we always start with is where did we start? And I pull up that mind map and I say, this is what we do. And then I say, and this is what you should do. And then at the end of what I say is, we didn't do any of that. So I, I, I kind of like to, to kind of summarise it all by saying, you know, at the end of the day, naivety can get you very far in life. And as long as you continue to follow your gut, you'll probably be OK. So yes and no is my kind of answer. Yeah, I
0: mean, I was going to say that, that what comes out loud and clear all the way through your book, you know, you've made a film about it now, you're talking to everyone about it, and what communicates is that gut. Mm. It is visceral, isn't it? And, it, mm. you know, it's the same with Isabella Tree and James Rebanks and Helen mm. Rebanks. It's that thing that you all have in common. It is the dream, and it is knowing that you have to do it. It, it really was a calling for you,
1: wasn't it? it? It really was, and and the thing is, is that the calling that it has transpired to be what is Lindbreck what was never what we really started out with you know the the call was to live closer to nature, live closer to the land, you know, that quintessential good life dream, which, which so many of us have, you know, growing your own food, having a few, few hens running around, you know, earning a, a little bit of money, you know, enough to pay the bills. And, and that was really it. And that, that's kind of where everything stemmed from. What it's kind of bloomed into, blossomed into, has been this part of a movement which is absolutely incredible to be a part of but the core the core is still true the core of what we do here is it's still about growing our own food it's still about you know reconnecting ourselves to nature and now what it's grown into is helping others to make that step in their own lives so it's yeah it's been very exciting journey
0: yeah well let's talk about that movement Mm. because i think that that's what it is that is so exciting that's what speaks to people because we all share that well so many of us share that sense of lost connection and it goes Mm. back to the industrial revolution doesn't it and the enclosures acts and the way that you put people back in nature is Mm. a way of reclaiming that story what tell us a little bit about that story from your perspective
1: yeah so so Um, As I say, you know, before we did any of this, we were living and working down in the south-east. We were living just outside Maidenhead, working for the National Trust. And so our jobs were very outdoorsy. They were very practical. And we did have some levels of kind of engagement uh, with with the general public. But mostly mostly it was kind of a practical-based job. Then when we made that leap to, you know, quit our jobs, I always describe it as everything your parents tell you not to do in life. We made this move to quit our jobs, move to Scotland, follow our dreams ended up at Limbrick, which was 15 times bigger a landholding than what we were actually looking for. We start off with... No experience in farming, no, and no money, you know, and, and I say no experience in farming, I really emphasize that point because farming was never part of the dream. Um, you know, we'd been working in conservation. Latterly, we'd been working in, you know, in rewilding. We'd spent two years living and working in the borders of Scotland planting trees. So we'd been reading books like Feral by George Monbiot, started to become quite critical of farming. So it was never really part of the plan. But when we moved to Lindbrecht, we saw, you know, to us, Lindbrecht is the land of milk and honey. If you were to look at Limbreck with commercial farmer's eyes, you know, you would turn on your heels before you got down to the bottom of the track. You know, there's a little bit of in by ground. It's woodland, it's bog, it's heathery hill, you know, it's Scotland in a nutshell. And we did really see the opportunity because we were looking at it from a conservation and rewilding point of view. As we then started to say, well, hang on a minute, you know, we're kind of going to need some large herbivores in the landscape. We're going to need a little bit of disruption. So pigs would do that really nicely. Um, we want some hens, but how could we make them work in a regenerative capacity? And all of this started to build together into what our eyes became this different way of producing food. And so that then motivated us to say, well, maybe we should share this with other people. Maybe they might be interested in learning about it too. And actually, can we work this way and can we work with nature to actually not just produce food, but to pay our bills? And so that's kind of how the story has come together and how we felt really that it's become part of our mission, it's become part of our purpose, not just to grow our own food, but to grow what we can for other people and to share that story with others to help them bridge the gap between nature and people. What I'm really interested in is Mm. how
0: we all feel that kind of, we understand what you're talking about from Mm. the gut because Mm. however much we know about the history of you know the the, the, how we lost our connection with food we all feel it yeah Uh, we understand the kind of the industrialization of food we understand the problems with that we watch how farming has has really lost its soul, mm. not because of the farmers, but because of the industry and mm. because of the true cost of food. We understand all that. I mean, because I know that you came from a sort of wanting to to plant trees, you came from the nature point of it. But yes. did you feel that kind of that, that pull against the industrialization of nature?
1: Um, yeah, I think it's a really good question. And I think initially, It was a very personal thing. You know, it was a very personal thing for Sandra and I on our own journeys in life, you know, really trying to rebuild that connection with nature. Then I think as we started to uh, to really sort of explore the food system as a whole, we started to get a real peek into that Industrialization and start to think you know do we want to be a part of it but I think you know Jilly what's quite interesting and especially over the last few years I've really started to question this and I've really started to think you know what is it about the food system whereby we seem to just perpetuate this disconnect and I like to think of it in terms of root cause so you know in medicine nowadays you know whenever doctors are you know they've got patients coming into their room We have a tendency nowadays to just, you know, say, oh, take this drug, you know, take that drug. You know, this is this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do and i'm really interested in root cause medicine so whenever somebody comes in they you know you find you know what is the root cause of why you are unwell and i think what we're trying to do at Limbrec is almost do what i kind of call root cause farming really start to peel back the layers of farming and say what is the root cause of where this disconnect where this industrialization has come from and a lot of it as you say you've pinpointed the timing completely right with the industry you know with the industrial revolution but it's because we've started to take people off the land. And the more we take people off the land and put them into mechanized equipment and start to reduce our labor force, we're disconnecting the very people who actually produce our food from the land. So, what what you know what what chance have the rest of us got? So it's it's really quite an interesting one to look at it from that kind of root cause element, and when we start to look at you know, say, you know, people say, well, how are we going to feed the world? You know, we need to grow food in factories. We're just perpetuating the disconnect. We're just perpetuating that problem, which is the one that we need to address to save all of our lives on this beautiful planet. And that is reconnecting ourselves with our food. I think it's so fundamental.
0: I do too. Um, and what I love about your story is that you bump into a lot of this as you're going along. It really is, you know, you, you get the hens and then you watch the hens and you, you really kind of notice how they operate. You're mm. learning. You, you, you play with the pigs. You see what they do. I love that bit where the pigs are playing with sticks and they sound like little dogs. And then suddenly <laughs> you realise that actually they're making a little bird table. But they live absolutely with nature. Mm. Of course they do. I mean, it's it's these kind of, you bump into these moments where you go, oh, of course that happens, but we somehow mm. forgot about it. That's what's so, it's such an awakening, Um, I mean, let's go through some of your food moments. And I want to spend some time talking about your food moments, um, because actually they do tell the story incredibly well. Um, Your first is the 100% Limbreck Feast. Mm. Uh, It says so much in this one. Tell us how you got to... Actually, sit down and eat 100% food from your land.
1: Yeah, so so that's a really nice question. Um, so that I think that comes from our uh, our chapter on breaking new ground. It's where we're to kind of talking about working with the pigs. And so pigs were the first of our big animals that we got at Limbreck. We had a few, you know, chickens fairly early on, but pigs were the first big ones that we got. And we'd only really been here about eighteen months before we took the plunge to get the pigs. And our our motto here at Limbreck is, you know, rather than just seeing animals as a kind of an outcome, you know, they are going to be meat. Uh, we always try to kind of give them a purpose. We try to tap into their natural instincts, you know, to quote a famous farmer, Joel S- you know, Salatin, work with the animalness of the animal. So we had this area that we wanted to plant uh, 320 t- trees to form part of a shelter belt. So a band of trees that would give our livestock shelter in the future and would connect to existing pieces of woodland. And to plant trees, it takes quite a lot of work to prepare the ground for planting, so we thought, well, thinking about pigs, you know they rootle, they break up the ground why don 't we put the pigs in the area where we 're going to plant the trees? Let them have a ball in there for six months, bring them out we 'll plant the trees, and then the pigs go off to the abattoir so that was the kind of the first job for the first pigs that we did. We then brought them to uh, the abattoir ourselves and and that was definitely a rite of passage because neither of us had really truly prepared ourselves for that situation you know there's a lot of people who will say you know I couldn't do what you do because it involves you know killing the animals that you've cared for that you've raised that you you know you've given a lot of love and joy and spent a lot of time with um so we had to go through that rite of passage of bringing them to the abattoir and then a few days later you know the meat was butchered and then it came back to us and, and, and this is when we, we combined two pork steaks. So we each had two pork steaks and we had some homegrown tatties, you know, we're up in Scotland, so it's tatties up here. So we had some homegrown tatties, some veg that we'd kind of carved out of our new kitchen garden that we've created. And we sat down and we just thought, wow. This is this is a hundred percent limbreck. And not only is it a hundred percent limbric, but it's a hundred percent of the goodness of limbreck. And really since that point, Jelly, I would, you know, honestly with my hand on heart saying that it's more common for us to eat a one hundred percent limbrec meal than it's not. So that's a very joyful yeah. thing to say.
0: Well, absolutely. And, you know, you sort of skirted over that, um, that relationship with your pigs. Um, a couple of my friends, I've got two, um, sets of friends who've been through that process. Mm. Um, and it is really hard, isn't it? That first time that you take your pigs to the abattoir. Um, uh, my, one of my friends slathered the, um, the horse box that they took them into with mango and all sorts of <laughs> wonderful things to get them in there and made it filled it with hay and, you know, settle them down, just like your dogs, because yeah. they are incredibly beautiful animals, aren't they, pigs? Um, but the point is that if you are going to have pigs, they will destroy the land after a, a certain amount of time. There is only a certain amount of time that they can do good mm. on the land. So you have to, dispatch them. And if you're going to dispatch them, then you have to eat them. It it is the way that we've always lived, except for the last 200 years. And your relationship with that Mm. is something that is really profound. And it's a big learning experience that you go into with an enormous heart Mm. in the book. Um, I mean, you and Sandra really talk a a, a lot about how you feel about stuff, Mm. don't you? Mm. This isn't some, you know, hardy, blokey farmer (laughs) story. This is really and it's not lily-livered southerners either mm. it's it's a really thoughtful approach to our relationship with nature y- you talk a lot about putting people uh, right back in nature, our, our, our
1: natural place. It, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm really it, glad you, you pick up on that because the the goal to writing the book was not to write a manual for other farmers. Yeah, I mean, it's a book that hopefully, you know, other farmers or other people that live and work in the land can pick up and read. But the whole thing that we wanted to do was we wanted it to be relatable to somebody maybe who lives in the top floor flat in a big city. You know, we wanted it to be a book that gave people an insight into farming um, that meant they didn't have to have any knowledge of it. So I'm really delighted that, you, that that's something that you've picked up on.
0: And, and the kitchen garden is your second food moment. It took an enormous amount of time, as we all know, anybody who's tried to k- to make a kitchen garden work uh, will know mm. that it does take a lot of time and commitment, but that the, the joys are so there. And this is what we were making our mind map about last night. You know, how do we actually yeah. spend more time in the space that we've got um, and the kitchen garden, for me was the answer. I want you know that it 's purpose driven I want to be able to bring all the the, mm-hmm. the bees and the butterflies and uh, and all that good stuff, but actually, I want to be able to eat the food and, and that takes a lot of commitment planting the right stuff, for yes. example. You know, you talk about deer, we've got deer here. It's a mm. nightmare. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, I will be looking uh, at your courses um, so that we can get the best out of things. But that's the point, isn't it? It is about being the best that you can be in this particular life that you've chosen.
1: Absolutely. And it's, it's you know, I, I fully agree with that. I think it's about being the best that you can be and, and doing the best that you can you know we, we live in a world where perfection is lauded as as the all-time goal and you know that i can't remember who it was that said you know why let why let uh, perfection get in the way of good enough you know it's all about balance it's all which is which is nature in a nutshell and and you know coming back to the kitchen garden element you know Right at the very start we talked about why are we at Limbreck and and it was all about growing our own food. And I think, you know, over the nearly eight years that we've been here, you know, we've carved out this just insanely productive jelly, insanely productive kitchen garden whereby we now produce 100% of our year round veg. Now, I sometimes put a caveat in that because sometimes it's February and you want a fresh pepper for your pizza and you haven't got one. So, but, but if we wanted some jarred green beans, you know, we'd be okay. We produce enough that if the apocalypse came, we could survive year round from vegetables alone. And that's, That's incredible, Jilly, you know, for for one main reason, and that is because of our location. So we are in the Highlands of Scotland. We are in the Cairngorms National Park. Our croft is at 350 metres above sea level. We face due south, which is lovely for the sun, but that is where all the prevailing weather comes from. And we're on heavily acidic soils. Everything, Jilly, is working against us. And whenever I bring people into our kitchen garden, into our polytunnel, and I, I share, you know, the story of the abundance that we can grow, I say to them, remember, so many people will tell you that nothing will grow here. But this is an example of how you truly harness the power of nature, how you work with the land, how you work with the crops, how you you grow what wants to grow here, how you invite nature to come in and share that space because she will regulate it for you. You know, how you work with the soil, how you build the soil, how you, you don't add poisons to it you don't compress it to squeeze all the oxygen out it yeah. but you want this fluffy worm-filled mold-filled brown you know amazing ecosystem that's going to produce food and that's what people see when they come yeah. here
0: and and to do that to get that you need the mob grazing uh, kind of mentality don't you? you need you need your pigs mm. but you also need your hardy beasts now most people don't get a highland <laughs> cattle to bring their <laughs> soil back you did mm.
1: Yeah, so so in the kind of the wider in by fields, uh, we we have a a small fold. Highlands come in folds, not herds. So we have a small fold of Highland cattle, and um, we we brought the Highlands on. Um, because we did see that that, that there was a need for large herbivores in our landscape. There was a need for the role for them to play of moving and grazing and dunging and urinating and moving and grazing and dunging and urinating on that cycle. And we decided to choose highland cattle. Um, I think they're the most incredible animals. They're suited to our land. They're suited to our land and our landscape and what we produce here naturally, which is the natural vegetation that grows. And they can then turn that uh, into abundance for other species species, but also into this incredible 100% pasture and tree leaf fed meat, because they don't just eat grass. You know, you say to people, what a, what a, what a cattle eat? And they say, grass. Well, yeah, a, a bit, but they'll also eat wildflowers and herbs and tree leaves and lichens. And that's what our animals feast on and it's through the working that we do with them, as you described it, you know, mob grazing, basically just moving them in the in the summertime, that's usually daily, and harnessing their superpower to play their role in building biodiversity back into Limbre. Yeah.
0: And you say, you know, it's tree leaf and wildflower beef steaks that you've chosen as your mm. as your third food moment, the hardy beasts. I mean this is 100% grass-fed, locally fed. There's literally no other input in in your beef steaks, which makes it such a special dish. Let's talk
1: about eating your cattle. Yeah, I mean it's it's it, it is such a special dish and you can't you know, you can't really compare it to anything else. You know, the, 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 the food that the cattle hate, eat uh, in the summer is, is just limbrek. In the winter, they get some hay, uh, which is cut from a meadow about two miles away from here on a local estate. You know, it, it really doesn't get much more kind of local, much more to this landscape than that. Um, and it, it's funny, you know, the question you say, you know, at or the, or the point that you say, let's talk about eating your own beasts. You know, we talked about earlier, Jilly, about the pigs and how they're like dogs. And they are. Pigs are like Labradors. They're like excitable Labradors. Cattle are very different. They're much calmer. They're much more docile, almost thoughtful beasts. And I say that because of the way, the sensation that you get around them when they're digesting their food. You know, chewing the cud. We all know of chewing the cud. And they sit down and it's very thoughtful and very peaceful. And our cows are with us for quite a long time. You know, we will take our cows up to, you know, this year we took one off at 54 months, you know, which in a commercial setting, most beef cattle are gone at between 12 and 20 months. So they're with us for a very long time. And so you develop a very different relationship than what you do with the pigs. So actually, when it comes to that, what we call their one bad day, when it comes to that one bad day, We almost find it harder with the cattle because the relationship feels almost that little bit deeper but we make sure that that then motivates us that when we get to the other side, that everybody that buys the beef from us, they know that story. So everybody that buys beef or even indeed pork from us, every time they get a little information sheet and it tells the story of the animal that it came from so that they really appreciate, it's not just us, they really appreciate how that animal you know, died for us to give us nutrition but also it left this incredible legacy at Limbrec whereby by the birds, the insects, the soil are thriving as a result of it. Yeah. So that's a nice way for us to see it. And it helps us process that journey. Yeah.
0: And and you as well, you and Sandra are learning so much. I mean, the, you say something about, you know, wherever you have livestock, there's going to be dead stock too. And you mm. tell a really heart wrenching story of one of your cows carving and not mm. knowing what to do to lick the sack of her newborn calf mm-hmm. and the calf dies and you witness this and it is utterly, utterly heartbreaking to read, let alone live. Yeah. I mean, what you are learning is quite extraordinary. Um,
1: you say that that still is with you? 100%, Jilly. And it actually makes you reconsider the relationship between life and death. And you know, de- death is something I think that you know we very, it's a very much feared thing. You know, we we don't want to die, and of course, you know, life is great. You know, we live in a in a wonderful place, and 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 life is good. But it makes you really understand that death isn't actually the end. You know, death is a part of the cycle. It's a part of the life and life and death cycle that is constantly turning around and rather than it be something that we fear it's something that we lean into those feelings we lean into every time and what it really makes you accept and really makes you appreciate is don't ever waste one second just simply don't do it because every moment is very very precious um, and that's what that's a big learning that we've had from all of this yeah
0: your final food moment is the welcome honey cake. It's a wonderful mm. way of, of welcoming people to your story. You're telling it everywhere and you're telling it to the visitors who come up to, to see you now. Um, tell tell me what that honey cake moment means to you, people seeing the results of this extraordinary adventure that you've been on.
1: Yeah, I, I, I love the Limbrek honey cake. And and. Back in 2019, I was, or sorry, 2020, it was just before the lockdown, I was really lucky to go to Slovenia um, with a group of other farmers and visit some farms in Slovenia. And the first one that we went to, um, we arrived and they just gave us loads of food. And they were like, oh, we grow this, we create this. And I just thought, wow, that's such a nice welcome. And so that was a learning that I brought back to Lindbreck, so that whenever we do because we do public tours, uh, we do tours for tour companies. Whenever they come here, I introduce them, I say, hi, my name's Lynn, welcome to Limbrek. And then I give them a slice of our honey cake. And I, you know, that people love cake, so it's a nice kind of welcome to people. But I say to them, this is the best way that you can experience Limbrek, because you're actually going to eat it. And so I make this honey cake, it's homemade, I use our own eggs, uh, I use our own honey, um, you know, I use other organic ingredients. And I really from that point set the tone of, I want you to engage with this land. I want you to engage with the food that you're eating. And I want you to understand that it has all been produced in a way that has provided abundance and has regenerated the land, has regenerated me. And I want it to go away and regenerate them as well. You know, the snowflake that makes the snowball. And so the honey cake is, is such a powerful uh, little tool in our toolbox to help us deliver that purpose that we have, which is reconnecting people with the land and their food. And they get it, don't they? They really get it. They absolutely 100% do.
0: When you go back to where we started, you know, that mind map, um, putting people back at the centre of, of nature, following this calling, you know, developing skills, Are you, didn't have I mean Mm. you might have been rangers you might have known how to plant a tree which a lot of people don't know how to do because it's quite hard to to grow trees but you really weren't set up to do this you got your funding I mean that's Mm. a skill in Mm. itself that's pretty amazing you've done it do you think that Mm. that dream that you had is the dream that you're living now or is it something bigger deeper that you didn't even know that was available to you
1: so I think I can honestly say now that the dream that we had um, is the dream that we have now. It, it is is what we are living. You know, people often say, never follow your dreams. It's a do very, they? very dangerous thing to do. and <laughs> I'd run a mile well, from I've, people I've who said that. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Well, it's because, you know, is your dream actually as good as what you dreamt it was going to be? And And I think that... If you'd have asked me that question maybe five years ago, I would have said, Oh, no, it's completely different. And I think it's because we've now got to this point in our lives whereby, you know, we've, we've done the hard graft. Not to say that we don't still work very hard. We do, but we've done a lot of that really hard graft. We've had a lot of learning to do. We've had a lot of skills to develop. Uh, we've had to grow a a thicker skin. Um, we've, we've been on this incredible journey. And I think, where for me, the, the the kind of the square has become a circle is really starting to see where I fit in all of that personally, you know, in my own space. And that's where recently both Sandra and I have really both had the time to explore, you know, how do we fit into all of this rather than just being on this treadmill to get to this end goal. And so I think now more than ever, it feels so genuinely beautiful to be doing what we're doing. And it is. It is exactly what we dreamt of. We wanted to live closer to nature. We wanted to live a bit of a slower life. We maybe didn't get that quite right, but we wanted our hands. We wanted to earn enough that we could pay the bills. And what it's become uh, is that dream and so much more. And so I feel very privileged to be in a position to, to be talking to you today, to be where we are and to be living and eating the type of food that I always dreamt I
0: would eat. Thanks for listening. Do head to my Substack for Extra Bites from Lynn and Sandra, where you'll find some of the recipes and pictures from Lynne Breck. And I'll see you next week.